People are complicated creatures. And yes, that goes without saying, but in Ashley Seaford's memoir called Somebody's Daughter, she writes about that fact with a clarity and grace that I have rarely read. Somebody can be really loving and a fantastic support to you and be somebody else's worst nightmare, be somebody else's monster, the thing that comes out of the dark. For the first 30 years of her life, Ashley's father was in prison. And growing up and later experiencing sexual violence as a teenager, she began to search for a reason for it all. And as a kid, she says, she began to wonder if the two things were connected. There was a part of me that thought what happened to me happened because of what my father had done. There was a part of me that thought this is me paying for his sins. So from The Advocate magazine, in partnership with Glad, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Ashley Seaford, the author of the powerful new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Here it is. You know, when it comes to incarceration, we talk about the perpetrators a lot. We're beginning to talk more about the victims and survivors. But reading your book, it really made it clear how absent from discussions and public discussions, specifically the community is, how it affects the families of those who are incarcerated. I don't hear that as loudly. I would agree with you. I think that that was a huge push for me writing this book and working on this book and telling my story as both a person who has been victimized and the person who is in relation to someone who has been a perpetrator of the same crime. Everything about the circumstances that I was born into, as well as the circumstances that occurred after my assault, Everything essentially told me, the world was telling me, that this is not a tellable story. This is not a shareable story. So going off of those two things where, you know, your father was imprisoned for sexual assault, you have experience with sexual assault, they seem to be in, you know, direct contradiction. And in many ways they are. And yet you write and say that it's not your job to forgive him. And I just wonder, like, did you yourself ever wonder if that knowledge would be too much that you would not be able to have a relationship with him? Yeah. It's difficult because when I found out why my father was in prison, there was no regular communication with my father. There was no, like oh, now, like, we're not talking to each other. We already weren't talking to each other. We didn't have a way to talk to each other. Emotionally, what occurred inside of me, there was a part of me that thought what happened to me happened because of what my father had done. There was a part of me that thought this is me paying for his sins. This is me paying for his crimes and that I had paid for them with my body. And I think I thought that and believed that because you, you search for reason. You search for reason as a 14-year-old. And you don't know why this happened to you. You don't know why your father made the choices that he did. And you start to come up with your own answers because it's not really safe to talk about. 
with the uh, with the adults who are around you. And it is so much easier to believe that either there is some force out there that is putting these things on you or that this was in somebody's control. These things don't just happen. It happens because in some way you must have deserved it, even if not by your own hand. And I was stuck in that feeling and in that emotion for a really long time. And it didn't start to get better until I was in therapy. And that was just start to get better. <laughs> it's not something I'm completely healed from. It's not something I'm, I'm done with in my mind. It's just something that when those thoughts come up, I have to process and I have to remember to live in the truth and to live in reality and not go to the fantasy place where the difference between me getting assaulted and not getting assaulted is something that my father did, you know, 15 years before. Wow. So even though intellectually, you know, that this was not your like fault by any means, and that it wasn't karmically what you deserve, you still are like reminding yourself about that. Absolutely. To this day, I still have to remind myself that this did not happen to me because it was called down, because it was called down upon me, that this happened to me because a person, a young man made a choice. And I felt the effects of that choice. I, I felt the violation of that choice. And now it is something that I have to remember and move through and learn to move through, but it's never gone. It's never gone away. I mean, when it comes to restorative justice and, you know, building this relationship with your father, I think that harm repair looks different for everybody. And so I know that you are not saying this is blanket advice. Yes. But I think that like we want blanket advice when it does come to that. Right. I, I wonder, I guess, like, was that a conversation that you had with your father? Well, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot when I talk about sexual assault is the fact that somebody can be really loving and a fantastic support to you and be somebody else's worst nightmare, be somebody else's monster the thing that comes out of the dark. And I have to accept that my father, he is both of those things. <laughs> I could absolutely say, I don't want anything to do with a parent who did something like this, a rapist. And I think most people would believe that that would be the easiest choice that you would go to first. I think that those people most likely can't fathom the reality. It would be really hard, I think, to fathom the reality, even though it happens all the time, every day. We think that the people who we love and who love us and who treat us well, it is because they don't have the capacity to do evil. And that's not true for anybody. Everybody has the capacity to do evil. It's just that some of us don't do it. I think about my father's life. I think about the fact that he went to prison two weeks before he turned 21. I think about the fact that in 30 years of incarceration, my father attempted to 
connect and maintain a connection with his children, which is very hard. The system makes that so hard. And I think about what I want, to be perfectly honest. I never got the chance to have a relationship with my dad. Not an in-person can call my dad, like any of those things. The relationship I have with my dad is for me. I do love him and I want him to be happy and I want him to be okay. But this is for me. Talking to him, having those conversations with him, it's all about me, to be honest. Like, I know why I show up for him. Well, that's why I like that in the book, up until the moment where you find out as the reader, you know, what he was in prison for, the book functions a bit as like the love story between Ashley and her father. Mm -hmm. And so it complicates that narrative. I thought that was important because we live in this polarized time where everything is black and white, good or bad. And it relates to people. Yes. I appreciate that because I also do not believe that this man, now that he's out of prison, should never be able to hold a full-time job again or not have any relationship with his family. And yet sometimes the public conversations are all or nothing. Yeah. Those are emotional reactions. And I'm not, I would never try to take that from anybody. And I think that your emotions tell you how you feel about something, how strongly you feel about something. And people are passionate about not wanting people who have done harm or who could potentially do harm around folks who have no interest in being harmed. I understand that. I feel that in my body and bones. Like, I get that. I just don't think it works, to be honest. And so now that he is out, how is the fantasy of your father comparing to the reality of him? It's interesting because, you know, the fantasy has never really been able to be a whole fantasy. It's never been able to be like, oh, I have no idea who he is. And so he could be anybody. You know, there have always been some constraints on the fantasy about my dad and who he is and and, and what he is. But getting to know him now, like it's been really lovely. It's strange how alike we are. It's strange how much he sounds and looks and moves like my brother. He was in prison until he got out of prison. He was in prison for my brother's entire life because my mom found out she was pregnant with my brother after my dad was in jail, after he had been arrested. So so you were married recently. Like, Was he at the wedding? Yes. I have what I call my adoptive parents, Mitch and Becky, who... I used to watch their kids in, when I was in college and then just sort of became part of the family. And Becky pretty much planned my wedding. I had no idea what I was doing or how to plan a wedding. And Mitch was my, was our officiant for our wedding. And my dad walked me down the aisle and I did the dad and daughter dance with my dad. And, you know, there's that part of the wedding where people get up and speak and like say something about the couple. And Mitch really wanted my dad to say something because he just felt like it would be important to him later. And, you know, I kind of felt like, well, if he wants to say something, he will. But Mitch was adamant. Mitch was like, he will regret it if he doesn't say something at his only daughter's wedding. 
And so at some point I saw Mitch run over to my dad and literally grab his hand and bring him up to the mic. And my dad got up there and he started to speak. And I kind of was like, this is, this might be hard for him. He's in front of all these people. Like, you know, this is already kind of a big gathering, you know, for my dad. And he just spoke so beautifully and so eloquently about the way he saw me and how happy he was that I was with someone who seemed to see all the same beauty and loveliness and things like that in me. I really mostly just remember the last line. You know, I'm sitting there next to my new husband, looking at my dad, and he turned away from the rest of the crowd and turned to look at me. He said, Ashley, your father's home now. And I wept. Everybody wept. My husband, who cries at the drop of the hat, had already been, like, he just cried harder. And it was this moment of, I think, being like, wow, he is. He is home now. The home, the dad's coming home is no longer a fantasy. It's my reality. He's right here at my wedding, and he's not going anywhere. I mean, how wild for your dad that he missed 30 years of his daughter's life, but he still was able to walk her down the aisle. Kelly is your now husband. How long have you two been together? Kelly and I had a, uh, a fling situation in college, and then he moved to New York for an internship, and then he moved to Seattle for a while. And it wasn't until he was in Seattle that we reconnected. And he came back to Indiana. I was living here. And he called me and asked me if he could see me. And I was excited to hear from him. You know, we weren't doing anything romantic anymore, but he was a friend. And he and I just thought he was a great guy. So I'm like, yes, come over right now. Like, let's hang out. I'd love to see you. And I really did think it was just about to be like some friendly, hey, how's it going? Let's catch up, hang out. Um, but he showed up at my door. And I opened the door and he kissed me and he said, are you seeing anybody? And I said, nope. And we've been together since then. So that was October 2013. I asked that because you've been together for a while. Was it while in a relationship with him that you began to discover your queerness? <laughs> no. Kelly knew about my queerness during that fling in college. It was sort of this thing that I kept feeling like I'm not going to explain it until somebody makes me explain it or asks me to explain it because it deeply just felt like, what's the announcement? Like, who am I announcing it to? Why would I do that? I could just live my life. That's so interesting that you realized that you were queer and then kind of were like, I can keep this inside as long as I need to, whereas most people need to yell it and announce it to the world in order to like to also become comfortable with themselves. I think those people are often signaling for or looking for community. I already had a ton of queer friends, lesbian, gay, everything. I've always had friends like that. That's so insightful. People come out and announce it to say, hey, let's be friends. But you already had the friends. I already had the friends. So to me, it was just like, if you want to know, you can ask me. 
but there's really just no other reason for me to be like, by the way, guys. By the by, sexual. You know? <laughs> it was just, it. I see how it can and does make sense for others, but it just didn't make sense for me. It's just who I am. To me, it would have made as much sense as coming out as Black, for me. But that's not true for everybody. But I absolutely do have people who challenge my queerness or who have challenged my queerness because of the decision about who I married. And I think about that all the time because I'm just like, I don't know, when you got married, did you stop being attracted to other people? (laughs) I don't think that that is true for the majority of us. I think the majority of us have sexual desire, even in monogamous relationships. And that has something to do with who you are. Now, on the other hand, Because of my straight passing privilege, I do try not to take up too much space in places that are meant to be for queer people who are in same sex relationships. But I also have to be honest about who I am because I'm not going to fucking lie about it. And the truth of the matter is, I like a lot of different kind of people. I see a lot of sexy people out there all the time. And I notice that they sexy and sometimes I want to touch them. I don't do it because that's not in the agreement of my marriage. And, but does it happen? Absolutely. Does it also happen for my husband? Absolutely. And I'm cool with that. I, we are whole sexual human beings who have decided to only have sex with each other. That's all it is. When you say that you get weird looks or comments about being bi and married to a man, I, just to be specific, is that coming from in and out of the LGBTQ community? Um, it's It comes differently, right? Because when it comes from in the LGBT community, it is usually about suspicion. And it is usually about, are you still safe for me? You identify this way, but because I don't recognize this kind of relationship in my community, or I don't see it often, I can't immediately tell if I'm safe with you and that doesn't feel right to me. And then on the cis-hetero side, the thing that I usually get is, well, why do you have to identify that way? If you're not in that kind of relationship, people who feel like, well, if you could get away with not calling yourself queer, why would you? And of course, that is part of the reason why I continue to openly identify as queer and bisexual. You know, I have to say that intellectually, I understand biphobia. I know it's real. I know it's out there. Mm-hmm. But also, you and I... We've never met before, but we have a lot of mutual friends just working in like the queer media circle. And you Mm -hmm. are so well liked that it kind of (laughs) surprises me that people still in our community aren't just like giving Ashley like the free pass from biphobia. (laughs) That's so funny. That's funny to me because like, well, first of all, like being well liked is something that you can get a lot of different reactions from. I am pretty generally well-liked. I like to think that's because I'm a kind and generous woman who is trying to put out there when I meet people that like, hey, you're cool with me. Like, this is okay. You don't have to be nervous. The things that make you insecure, that's cool. Like, I can handle that. Let's just talk, you know? Like, because that's generally how I feel with people. Unfortunately, there are people who... 
I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. They think it either might be fake or they think that my success has come from being a kind person and not from being a talented person or a particularly thoughtful person, as if you can't be both. But a lot of people, you know, equate cynicism with intelligence or capability, which I don't because I know that that's not true. People love narratives because narratives are so good at giving us a false sense of certainty. They're so good at making us think that we can predict the future and that I can cut this person off or I can write this person off because I know people aren't really like that. And so I already know that that's going to be a trick. I know that I'm going to be fooled somehow in this situation. And the truth is I could mess up. I could say something really off color. (laughs) You know, I could do something that doesn't make sense with the way I've presented myself or is incongruent with my values. And I don't mind being checked. And then I have to sit with that and decide if it does make sense. I'm not scared of that. I'm not scared of being told that I did something wrong. I'm actually pretty good at apologies and I like to do things the right way. I like to be consistent. I like my actions to my actions to be congruent with my values. Maybe I am kind in a way that makes some people uncomfortable or makes them mistrustful, but at the end of the day, there isn't a whole lot of meat on that bone because that's just not the kind of person I'm trying to be. You saying that we are more comfortable with like single easy narratives, you know, that is a beautiful tie in to our earlier conversation about, you know, this woman, Ashley, had this father who committed a serious crime and now she needs to cancel him forever. And that's not how the real world works. It's not how the real world works. It's why people will see like somebody arrested for doing something terrible. And then it'll be like, you know, their family comes to the court case every day or their mom comes to the court case every day. And people will be like, how does she show up? Like, I wouldn't want anybody to see my face and associate me with this. But it's like she didn't do the crime. She loves someone who committed a crime. And we want to think that you can't love people who do bad things, which is why it's so hard to admit when someone you love does a bad thing. That's why you have people who defend celebrities or friends or family members online. Like I've, like they, I've never seen them do anything like this. I've never, they're not defending the person. They're defending themselves. They're defending their love for that person or their care for that person. But the truth is when you put it out like that, All you're doing in that moment is taking something away from the victims. That's not yours to take away. So you'll never hear me defend my father. You know what I mean? I like, I will talk about my father, but I don't defend him. And I don't defend him because my love for him is not something that I feel that I need to defend. And also because I know that just because I love him, doesn't mean he is incapable of doing terrible things. I never got to grow up with that myth. I didn't get to grow up with the myth that you can love someone who, and then they won't do terrible things if you love them. And that it says something about you to love someone who has done a terrible thing. I don't believe that. 
I think you can compound that terrible thing by defending them publicly or going after their victims and things like that. Absolutely. But you are not the person who did the bad thing. I had to get to that point where I didn't think of myself as having done something, having done something bad because I loved someone who had done something bad. I think that's an amazing place to leave it at. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you for having me. This has flown by. And that was Ashley C. Ford. Her new memoir is out now and is called Somebody's Daughter. And then next week, we've got the Ola Poppy writer, John Paul Brammer, joining us. So stay tuned for that. And then if you enjoyed this conversation with Ashley, might we ask for a small Pride Month favor? Please leave a comment on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on and help us spread the word with a social media post or a text to your friends, every single one if you were so inclined. Helping us spread the word about the show is the biggest way you can help our show continue to grow and it is very much appreciated. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. 